Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Dr. Joanna McMillan, is the founder of Get Lean and a regular on Australian television and radio. She has a weekly column on Sunday Life, uh, writes for several magazines and online blogs, including her own, is an ambassador for Diabetes Australia, the Skin and Cancer Foundation, Food Bank New South Wales and ACT, and Muscular Dystrophy, and has authored six books, the latest being the just-released Get Lean, Stay Lean. Joanna, welcome. Thank you for having me on. So tell me a little bit about Get Lean, Stay Lean. How did the book come together? Well, really, the book is a culmination of of much of my career. You know, my career started um, actually as a fitness instructor, and then I became a dietitian. Um, When I came out to Australia, I worked in research, and my research was very much in the area of uh, comparing different diets for losing not just weight but losing body fat and maintaining muscle which was something that of course with my fitness background I was really interested in and then post doing my research PhD then I've 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 worked with clients I've worked with corporates I speak to people all around the world and, and many of us are struggling with the same things and so the book is a combination of both my research of my of my studies my work um, and then my experience of working with people and understanding that we have to move past this idea of coming into a new year and starting yet another diet, following a diet for a um, specific length of time, and then falling off the diet, returning to our old ways of, of living and eating, um, and regaining all of the weight. So Get Lean, Stay Lean is about, the, the title is purposeful with that stay lean as being just as important as trying to lose weight. It's actually about long-term weight control. And that's really what I want to stress to people. We've got to start having our eyes much more longer term than how much weight you can lose in the next three months. It really is about how can we improve our health and 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 part of that is also then our, our happiness, our ability to get more from life by following a more of a lifestyle change program. Yes, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of books on the market, <laughs> a lot of diet books on the market. <laughs> <A lot>. Yes, <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of information if you look on the internet. So um, it seems to me that people, some some piece of the puzzle, I guess, must be missing for so many people to still be struggling. Do you think it is that, that key thing is that sustainability point that instead of thinking about losing weight, it's about sustaining well-being in a, you know, a happy place physically? I think absolutely. I, I think there's two factors there. One is that although there's lots of information, lots of books, and of course on the internet, you, you know, there's there's just numerous websites and things that you can you can follow. The part of the issue I find speaking to people is that that's leading to a lot of confusion. There's conflicting advice. There's advice from some very qualified people, some people with absolutely no qualifications, some people who have simply lost weight themselves and sharing what worked for them. And of course, what works for one person is not necessarily what's going to work for anyone else or, or for the vast majority of others. And then lots of people in between. So my experience in talking to people is that they genuinely don't know what way to turn, what is the best diet, should they be doing X, Y or Z? And therefore they get utterly confused or they keep jumping from one thing to another and not really doing anything that's going to give them sustainable results. So I think that's that's really, really key. And, and certainly when people come to me and they start understanding what my program is, that's often their feedback is that, gosh, it's just so nice to be some in a program that you know they they can trust the advice that's given is grounded in science you know i'm I'm ultimately a nutrition scientist um and and so it's grounded in the evidence that we have to date but the important other point of the the program is that it's flexible 
So that flexibility allows people to take into account their personal likes and dislikes, their allergies and intolerances, their, their cultural backgrounds and the way that you grew up eating. And the more that we can get people just adapting and changing their own diets and lifestyles just a little bit every time, that's when you get those sustainable results. So if you look at those books on the bookshop shelves, you know, so many of them are about, you know, get a bikini body in 10 days or lose this much weight in this amount of time. There's never any emphasis given to keeping that weight off and to, to doing this for life. So making permanent changes, not just the changes while you're trying to lose weight. Yes. I mean, it seems to me that some some aspects of the six steps are really not so much. I mean, there's food, obviously, is one of them, but but they're also about well-being, aren't they? Absolutely, yes. And and so I talk about my six steps as being food, drink, exercise, activity, and that there's a, you know, a difference between those two things, sleep and stress. And then importantly, those steps are built on a foundation of joy. Mm-hmm. You have to have joy underpinning the whole program. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to keep it up long term. Nobody's going to keep doing a punishing regime that they're really not enjoying. You're inevitably going to slip back to things that bring you joy. And we're hardwired. Our brain is hardwired to the reward centers to bring us back to the things that, that give us joy. So that's really important. But all of those steps overlap each other. And this is something I feel is also missing from many programs that just center on the dietary aspects or they just center on the exercise. Sometimes there's a, a behavioral component, but they don't really understand or, or teach about how if you're stressed to the max, that's likely to be affecting your sleep. And then when you're not sleeping well, you're too tired to get your exercise into the day. You're probably reaching for the wrong foods as a kind of energy pick-me-up or as, or as comfort eating to help with the stress. And, and the whole cycle sort of repeats itself. And it becomes very difficult to start really making the changes that, are, that will make a difference to your long-term health and happiness. So that's a really important part of the program. And for some people, you know, you might have to focus on your stress levels and stress management before you can tackle some of the other things. Whereas for others, it may well be that diet is the most important thing to change and they're ready to make those changes. And then there'll be lots of people who are in between who, who need to make small changes in all of the areas. Mm. Yes, I mean, I was most surprised at sleep being included. Um, and yet, you know, it's it's obvious that when you need energy, you reach for food. Um, of, of all the six, are, are any of them, do you find any of them surprise your clients or were surprising to you most? Yeah, well, I, I, I think with you, exactly what you said, sleep. Sleep is often the one that people are surprised that I bring up. But now we've, we've got a really good solid body of evidence looking at sleep. We still don't completely understand what happens to your body when we sleep, but we do know increasingly some of the things, and it seems to be particularly important for brain function, but the brain function includes things like appetite control. So we've got some great studies now showing that people who sleep less tend to eat more. Now, part of that might simply be being up late at night. You know, you're tempted to then go and have a drink or have something to eat. But but part of it also is this drive and appetite and trying to lift your energy levels through eating a little bit more. So we know we also know that there's some hormonal changes. Um, many of our hormones work in what's called a diurnal pattern, so they rise and fall um, uh, from the day to the night, um, or vice versa. And and the upset of those hormones can also impact on our metabolism and, and impact on our ability um, to control our our eating and our energy output. So we now have lots of mechanisms understood, which start to explain why when people who sleep less tend to be fatter and they tend to eat more, they tend to exercise less. 
And these are trends that are really quite clearly coming through from the research. And I think the other thing that surprises people, people will often say to me, oh, well, I'm, I'm fine, actually. I can make do on less sleep and I can get four or five hours or, or regularly I can do five or six hours and it doesn't affect me. But actually in the testing labs, we see that that's not true. Most adults need between seven and nine hours sleep a night. And if you're, if you're regularly getting far less than that, it will almost certainly be affecting your brain function and affecting um, your appetite. And probably, you know, your sense of joy as well in everything that you do if you're exhausted. Yes. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm amazed. One of the most common questions that I get from people is, Joanna, what can I eat to give me more energy? And it just astounds me that so often sleep is not something that comes into our minds. We immediately think, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing enough exercise. I'm not eating right. And, uh, you know, I'm too busy. And these are the things that are affecting my energy levels without actually thinking of, hang on, what's the obvious one here? I'm not getting enough sleep. And it's just amazing what a difference it can make to your life when you just start giving sleep a little bit more priority. Yeah, it's almost a philosophical shift too, though, isn't it? Um, I mean, the idea of, you know, well, I can get by with three hours a night, therefore I'm kind of a super person. I can get so much more done. This this idea of getting done stuff (laughs) as opposed to living. You're right. That's and, and think of how often you say to someone, how are you? And the answer is busy. Mm. You know, we use that busy word so much. And, and, and a lot of that, of course, we are busy. The modern, modern life does throw many challenges at us. But, you know, are we really any busier than, than any past generation? You know, we, we have this perception of busy and we have this perception of, as you say, everything we've got to get done in the day. And, and if that involves staying up late at night, getting up early in the morning and, and sacrificing sleep, we're really not thinking about what the impacts that might be on health. And it's not just weight control. So even people who listening who might think, well, I'm fine because I'm a healthy weight, you know, it actually impacts on your ability to be creative at work and and in your home life, your ability to concentrate, your memory, um, and and ultimately, as you said, your sense of happiness and joy because you're sort of rushing, rushing, rushing and never just taking time to sit back and and actually enjoy life. Mm, Yes. I I think of um, the the idea of what we're rushing towards, really, at the (laughs) end of the day. (laughs) Well, we're all headed to the same place eventually. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we it's, find out right there. Yeah, getting there any sooner is not necessarily a good goal. Uh, that's right. That's a nice, nice way to put it. <laughs> yes. So um, one thing that I really loved was um, I, I found quite innovative was the Dr. Joanna Plate. This idea of a mnemonic that's yeah. you know really easy as a framework, as you put it, to, to just carry around in your head so that you can always, no matter what you're doing and what the context is, you can always create yeah. a plate that's right. Yes, and look, that's, I mean, that's going back to the idea of flexibility. And so the Dr. Joanna Plate really emerged, again, while I was still working with, with clients and trying to find a way, you know, our dietary guidelines and so on are, as they say, they're just very, very general guidelines, but they're, they're very long and complex and they don't really help people to understand, okay, what do I eat in this one meal? How can I ensure that this is a really balanced meal? So, but what I find amazing is I've been using that Dr. Joanna Plate in, in my own uh, work and, and in my own life. I use it for myself and it's evolved over several years. But actually what's happened when you now look all around the world, so many um, uh, organizations and government guidelines and so on have all emerged to using some sort of version of a plate. And although it's all kind of happened independently, all of those plates are remarkably similar. There are some differences. Um, The difference with my plate is that I actually include a section specifically for good fats. And that's very purposeful. I'm sort of trying to encourage people, you've got to drop this idea of 
fats are bad and we should be eating low fat. Um, and, and actually, it's all about eating fats that are naturally present in our diet, naturally present in many whole, whole foods. Um, and these are fats that we absolutely should have in our, in our diet. And so that's the, the, the idea of including that. But overall, the Dr. Joanna Plate is about giving a template. It's not about being too prescriptive. And because it's a template, it then allows for you can choose to be a vegetarian or even a vegan. Um, you can choose to, to um, you know, if, you, if your background is Asian, for example, compared to if your background is European, the foods that you've grown up eating are very, very different. But using the plate, you can actually adapt and bring your familiar foods I hope to also, of course, broaden people's um, food intake so they have lots of, of new and try lots of new different foods because the more variety we have in our diets, the better, the more different nutrients we have and the less likelihood there is of getting too much of, of one thing. So variety is important, but flexibility is absolutely key because that's what will allow you to be, you know, traveling or at a business lunch or at, you know, eating in a restaurant, whatever, or making a meal at home. You've got this template to help guide you to your food choices. Yes. Um, interestingly, um, you also address a number of big fads in the book, um, some of the, the things mm. that people have sort of cottoned onto. And I suppose in conjunction with the plate, none of them are a problem. I mean, as long as you're, as long as you're fitting, you know, you can be paleo as long as the proportion of, of um, protein sure. to, to vegetables is, is fine, then it doesn't really matter if you, you know, cut out sugar. But if you're, if you're eating protein like the, you know, with, with the vegetable pie size, then, then yeah. maybe you're having, heading for a problem. So it is a really good way, I think, too, of evaluating those fads. Absolutely. I think so. And, and because the other thing that I see is that people, you know, cotton into one of these ideas um, and look, there is certainly some very interesting research going on. I know a number of groups who are researching the paleo diet. Indeed, I, as part of my own research, I was looking at some high meat diets. So in, in my hypothesis for my PhD thesis, I was talking about the research on hunter-gatherer diets. But back then, nobody was interested. And of course, now it's just suddenly hit the media and captured, captured public attention. So, I, you know, while there are flaws in that theory and, and um, you know, we could argue separately about, about those flaws in terms of naughty things, certain foods, there are certainly lots of really good things about paleo. But what I find is that people get the idea of it and they see it as being a diet that just allows them to eat lots of meat and that that's what it should be. When in fact, a true paleo diet, if we look at our ancestors' diet, they ate loads of plant food, actually much more plant food and much more fiber than we do today. So I think the plate will also help to guide people following, you know, whether it's vegan or whether it's paleo, you can absolutely use this plate to say, okay, I've still got to get, you know, I can cut out grains and dairy and legumes, um, but you've got to think carefully about what you're going to replace those things with. But the plate is still going to encourage you to have lots of veggies and some good fats along with your, your meat or your seafood. Um, the same things with vegans that will encourage them to think, okay, I do still have to think about what is my plant source of protein um, and how am I going to balance that up on the plate? You know, I know many vegetarians who, who still don't eat enough veggies. So, you know, the plate really is a flexible tool for everyone. Mm. Yes. Um, so with all those different fads that you've looked at, is, is there any that you really dislike <laughs> that you find, you know, this one <laughs> is really, really dangerous no matter how you look at it? Well, I think any approach that cuts out too many foods is, is really the most dangerous one. I mean, the one that's actually popping into my mind is I've heard a number of people here in Sydney doing it. One, it is extremely expensive, um, but secondly, it's extremely restrictive. And this is a diet that people follow for 
only for a few weeks, but they they um, have an extremely low food intake. They have days where they can only eat chicken. They have days where they can only eat veggies. They, and they have to buy this very expensive herbal concoction. And it just astounds me that people say, their eyes open when these are intelligent, smart, educated people who say, oh, but Joanna, it works. And I say, yes, it works because you're not eating any food. <laughs> not because you're not, you know, not uh, taking a particular herbal supplement. So it just astounds me that people get this idea about diet working um, when, you know, I could put you on the chocolate diet. And if it was actually very few kilojoules every day, you would lose weight. It doesn't mean that you'd be healthy. And it certainly doesn't mean that, that uh, you would manage to keep it off long term because it's clearly not teaching you anything about how to, to follow a healthy eating pattern in the long term. So I think that's what I would just caution people. If there are numerous foods that are cut out and you essentially have a very low intake, it's also very difficult to get your nutrients. So even when you're trying to lose weight, you still need to meet your requirements for iron, for calcium, for zinc. You still need a whole bunch of antioxidants for your body to protect itself. And importantly, you want to make sure that you're losing a maximal amount of body fat and not losing muscle. And most of these very extreme regimes are not looking at that. Yes. Uh, and I suppose it just goes back to the first thing that we were talking about, this notion of sustainability. You know, you have to be able to eat like this all the time. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter if you lose a lot of weight for a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's right. And that's what the research clearly shows. I mean, there's a number of research studies now that have said, you know what, the best diet is the diet that you can stick to. Um, and that's come from research looking at all sorts of, of, of uh, you know, commercial diets from Weight Watchers to Atkins to, to The Zone and so on, all those very big, big commercial diets out there. And, you know, they all have their pluses and their minuses. And they're all valid ways to, to lose weight. And, and that's what it ultimately comes down to is that one that you can stick to after a year. And so these are studies that are looking past those initial 12 weeks. They're looking at what happens at a year and beyond. And it's that beyond that is, is so interesting to look at. And we just so often see that everybody tends to drift back to a pattern of eating that is closer to what they're accustomed to. Um, and, and that's what's so important. So, so flexibility is absolutely key. But the other thing that, that was just coming to my mind, thinking about that there was also for people in families. So whether you have a partner or whether you've, and you've got kids or you've got grandparents living at home or, or you're living collectively where you, you cook for more than, than one person, it's really important that we're able to maintain that social aspect of eating because mm -hmm. that's the other thing that tends to go out the window when people are dieting or trying to lose weight or even just get healthy. You know, I speak to families where, and it's usually the mom, she's cooking one meal, she's cooking something different for, for her partner, she's cooking something different for the kids and all of a sudden we lose that sense of, no wonder cooking becomes a chore, but also we lose that wonderful sense of eating around the table, sharing food, being grateful for the food on our table um, and, and having that social and enjoyable aspect of eating. Um, and, and that's a really sad thing to me because, you know, that, that is ultimately food is more than the nutrients it contains. It really is a part of our social life and it should be an enormous pleasure in our lives. And we have to try to maintain that if we're going to have long term success. Yes, and I suppose that joy is all part of the the uptake of nutrients as well. I mean, I, I don't know how much research has been done on it, but I imagine yeah. that you'd, you'd get more out of your food eating with pleasure than with with uh, distaste. Well, absolutely. I think it helps to drive our food choices. And, so, and also it helps us 
you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about mindfulness. Well, mindfulness actually applies to eating as well. And when we're at, sit at a table with a knife and fork and you've got a napkin in your knee and you've got people around you and so you're chatting while you're eating and you're putting your cutlery down between mouthfuls, you can actually be much more in tune, allowing your body to catch up with you, to send the signals to your brain, to tell you when you're full. You know, in my family, we talk, one of my favorite cultural things is harahachibu, which is a mm-hmm. Japanese saying, which means eat until you're 80% full. You know, when you're eating in front of the television with a bowl on your lap, um, or you're eating in the car, or you're eating at the computer while you're trying to work, you're actually not focusing at all on the food. And therefore, it's very easy to override where that harahachibu, the 80% full point is and regularly find yourself overeating. So as well as there being joy involved, it's actually part of our food regulation to, to sit down. You know, one of it reminds me of one of my favorite ever studies, which is actually quite an old study now from, from I think it was 1999. And it was a study that looked at cultural differences in terms of our attitudes to food and, and how we placed food as a priority or as an importance in our lives. And it compared four nations. It was Japan, um, America, Belgium, and France. And perhaps unsurprisingly, when they asked, and they asked questions like, you know, which of these foods is the odd one out? Is it bread, butter, or pasta? And what would you say? Well, probably, probably butter. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting you on the, I'm putting you on the. Yes, well, the, yeah, the two, two are carbs asked, and one's a fat. So I guess I'd go with the butter. There you thing. go. Yeah. Yeah. So I ask that question often when I'm giving a keynote. And if I'm giving that address in the UK or in um, here in Australia or in the States, they almost always answer. And then I'll ask the audience with a show of hands. And the vast majority of the audience would answer just as you did, because bread and pasta are carbs. When you're in France, you ask that question, or indeed in Japan, where I, I'm, I was recently, the, 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 they answer the question differently. They say no butter. Um, uh, sorry, they say that pasta is the odd one out because bread goes with butter. So they have a culinary association of those foods. And those are the kinds of questions that were in this study. So rather unsurprisingly, France and America were at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their attitudes to food. In America, there was much more concern with buying you know, modified foods, whether it be lower in fat, lower in carbs, lower in salt, whatever, much more concerned about the impact of food on their health. They gave food less priority in their lives um, and they didn't see it as such a source of pleasure compared to France, who were almost completely the opposite. And the other two nations were, were somewhere in between. And what was so interesting, though, there is that clearly, you know, America has a much bigger problem with overweight, um, with body image, of course, and, and with all of the, the diseases that come alongside um, with poor eating and poor lifestyles. So it was just a really interesting psychological study that shows us that our attitudes to food and our eating behaviours actually does then translate into into differences in food choice. Yes, and especially in conjunction with that um, harahachibu that you talked about, this Western mm. sort of almost definitely rational fear of being hungry, perhaps, that maybe sits <laughs> at the heart of some of our, some of our uh, proliferation of eating disorders as well. Well, absolutely. And, and interestingly, I mean, one of the diets that has, has um, and I won't call this a fad because there is really good research behind the idea of fasting. And mm. um, so it's a question that I've been asked a lot. Is it a good thing to fast? And, and, and while there's pros and cons um, of fasting, and there's certainly some good evidence to, to show benefits, one of the things I find most interesting when people have done it and I ask them how they've got on is that that's the first thing they say, that they say, 
goodness, I actually recognise it's okay to be a bit hungry and that I'm not suddenly going to faint and keel over and, and uh, you know, pass away just because I've had a day of, of very little eating. And I think you're absolutely right. So many people eat and, and, and tell me that they're very rarely hungry or even never hungry because there is so much food available and there is this kind of fear of being hungry. So we almost eat in anticipation of being hungry instead of waiting until we truly are and then really finding that the enjoyment of food is so much more once we are hungry. Mm, yes. So the the other aspect of sustainable, and we've talked a lot about you know the the importance of diets being sustainable, but you've also talked in in other contexts about diets that are you know sustainable for the planet, particularly in light of population doubling yeah. by twenty seven seventy five. I think you've said. Um, yeah. Does it help you think the individual to see their food habits as not just being about ourselves, but having a broader impact? Well, yes, this is an area that's increasingly close to my heart and something that I'm reading more and more about and and um, and learning more and more about and understanding that it is more complex and it is and and our food choices um, may well vary depending on the area that you're living in. But I think it's it absolutely um, is crucial for us that we stop. It's so easy in modern life for us to become sort of quite you know stuck in our own little worlds and looking inwards. And this is of course what we see all the time with. Um, I watch young people on social media where everything is about selfies and, and how you look and criticizing each other's bodies. And you know what? It all becomes really quite, you know, egocentric. Um, and it's very difficult to sort of step outside ourselves and look to the broader picture. And this is what, you know, starting to think about eating for our health, but as well eating for our planet, allows us to see ourselves as, as part of a much bigger picture and seeing that actually Yes, of course, I'm stressing what's important for us to eat for our own health. But we've also got to say, okay, how are we going to feed the future generations? How are we going to eat in such a way that is not not going to be contributing to um, the environmental destruction of our planet? And it's um, a more complex scenario than we might think. But from what we understand so far, those two are actually fairly closely aligned. So we know that actually eating a little bit less animal food, particularly those, those bigger methane-producing animals, considering uh, sustainability of things like seafood um, and understanding the impact of those food choices and eating more plant food so that's good for the planet and it's good for our health. So I think it helps that that these things are fairly closely aligned. Yes, absolutely. So tell me a little bit Mm. about the recipes. How did how did those come about? Are those those sort of things you just um, make at home or did you you know did you sit down and actually develop them? Yeah, so the recipes, again, have developed. So I I run an online program called Get Lean. So this is really the book version of a program I've been running online for for a few years now. And and it's an extension of of what I used to do with my clients. And the program really developed out of me wanting to reach more people than I could see running a clinic and just seeing people one-on-one. And that was the whole purpose of setting up the online program. So when I originally set the program up, I recognized, well, you know, if I'm going to have pleasure and joy at the root of this program, I need to be able to inspire people how to eat. And the other thing I knew from speaking to my clients and speaking at speaking engagements and, and, and communications um, uh, just with, with everyday people that I met, I recognized that people are losing cooking skills or they see cooking as a chore or they, they tell me they just don't have time to eat. So I had an idea that, right, I want to produce recipes that will that are really easy to do, are not complex in the kitchen or that will give people more cooking skills, but also that are almost all pretty quick to do 
And I'll always say if it's a longer running recipe that you need a bit more time to do. But most of them are genuinely things that I cook for my family at home. Um, They're really, really easy to do. I am not a trained chef. Fortunately, I had a mum who was a fantastic cook and taught me to cook as I was growing up. And then my recipes have really just adapted over the years. I also pulled on board with me a really good friend of mine, Melissa Clark, who is a, she's a trained um, uh, cook and, and a previous caterer. And I pulled her on board to help me with um, food styling. So we do all those, all those beautiful images um, we do together. So uh, I have another friend, Nikki Ryan, who's a photographer and a couple of other photographers that I pulled in. So we're actually three photographers involved um, in those recipe shots. But we now do those recipe shoots together. We, Mel and I work together to create the recipe. She's also a mum at home with, with kids roughly my age. And so I nutritionally adapt her recipe. She might, you know, put a bit of a, the, the professional cook's touch to my recipes. And so together we, we make recipes that work, that tick both the nutrition, the cooking and the taste aspects. So I hope with the recipes that I really can inspire people to to see that healthy eating is delicious eating. It's not as if you are restricting yourself or or feeling like you're missing out because really, you know, by using herbs and spices and inspiration from cuisines all around the world and some just really good quality ingredients that are available to everybody, then you can actually make some really fantastic family meals. Mm, wonderful. So um, we're almost out of time, but uh, I'd love to hear, I know the book's just, it's literally just come out. So um, it, it, what's what are you most excited about? What's on the horizon for you? Just getting the word out on the book or are there other projects in the pipeline? Yeah, getting getting the words out on the book. We're also developing the online program a little bit more. So so once we do this initial publicity for the book, um, I'll be working on on launching a, a bit more of a help. We've called it Kickstart to Get Lean, and that will be a a twenty eight day. I'll hold your hand, you know, teach you a little bit of what's in the book and what's what's online. Um, every day, help you a little bit more with menu planning, and it's really just in that designed to be a kind of intensive. Um, months of getting your mind into the whole world of Get Lean. And what I'm most excited about is through these online programs and through the, the physical book itself is I really, really hope that I can change people's mentality about dieting, about weight control and about health to, to really relax back into it and to, to recognize this is lifestyle change and that we can make major differences to our health. And ultimately, if we can turn around the health statistics of, of um, Australia and other developed countries around the world, simply through the power of preventative health, that's really what this is, then that would be extraordinary. And if I've contributed in a small way to that, um, you know, I'll be absolutely delighted. Wonderful. Well, that is all we have time for today. But Joanna, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to talk. And and listeners, if you want more of Dr. Joanna and her new book, Get Lean, Stay Lean, uh, and an awful lot of free info as well, um, you can visit drjoanna.com.au. Thanks and bye for now.